Welcome to Indie Dotes, the podcast that shares the stories of independent creators. I'm your host, Susan Bond. Today on the show, I have Eric Holscher. He's a software developer and he's a co-founder of Write the Docs and Read the Docs. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So tell me how you got so interested in documentation. Yeah, so originally it's really kind of just a mistake, I guess. Uh, it kind of goes back to my first job out of college where I was working in the Lawrence Journal World, uh, working where Django was created, uh, the web framework, uh, which is a newspaper in, in Kansas. And uh, I really was just kind of getting integrated into the Django and Python community. And I think that community has a very kind of high standard for documentation for open source. So I was kind of doing my first open source projects and, you know, kind of started to write documentation for them and really just kind of fell into that, you know, interest in that culture uh, just through kind of the Python and Django communities themselves. And why do you think that community has is so has such good capacity with with documentation? Do you think that was accidental, or was there something about the language of the community? Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think the the Python community has been very kind of professional and, and a little bit conservative for a very long time, and so I do think documentation makes more sense if your software doesn't change as as fast. <laughs> um, mm. And so yeah, and then there's also just really good tools. So I think historically they the Python community has built wonderful documentation tools, and I think that kind of builds a you know a virtuous cycle of people building tools to make it easier, which makes people do it more, which improves the tools, which builds the culture. Um, and I think I'm I'm a product really of that culture, and I now I've kind of built Write the Docs as a community to hopefully you know take that culture and give it a home and and spread it out into the rest of the software industry. Mm, yeah, I love that. The uh, so let's talk quickly about. What um, today we want to talk, spend more of our time talking about read the docs. So let's talk quickly about what write the docs is. Sure. So write the docs is a, a community of people that you know care about software documentation. Uh, you know, independent of job title or anything like that. We've we've come up with a new term called, or we've basically stolen a term, the the term documentarian, um, and we use that to describe basically anyone in the software industry who cares about documentation, whether you're a tech writer, developer support person, marketer, you know, whoever's kind of getting value out of documentation. And uh, we have conferences in the US and Europe, and we have a one day conference in Australia just uh, coming up this year. We have meetups on four, uh, four different continents now. And we have a Slack community that has about 2,800 people in it, uh, which is kind of the, the beating heart of the, of the center of that mm -hmm. community. Wow, that's quite a reach. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds great. And what made you, uh, what was like sort of the impetus to start Write the Docs? Yeah, so we started that kind of originally, so Read the Docs was kind of our, our open source, you know, documentation hosting platform that had been coming, uh, that we've been working on for a few years. And we wanted to, to build kind of some small amount of community around that. So it really started as an event for Read the Docs users, Python people, you know, open source documentation folks. Uh, but then when we announced it, it kind of blew up on like Hacker News and Reddit, and it kind of became something much larger and took on a life of its own and pretty immediately kind of transformed into a much more holistic kind of documentation community for the software industry, uh, much more so than anything, you know, specific to, to Read the Docs itself. Oh, got it. Oh, really interesting. Got it. So you hadn't necessarily planned to 
spin it as its own community? Nope. Yeah, like the all, my entire background of, of creating things is very accidental. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh um, my god, I love that. But tell me more what you mean. I mean, so so I think Read the Docs itself was was very much accidental, right? It was um, so Read the Docs, the kind of open source project, was actually a, a forty eight hour hack day project. And so, you know, that was much more like, hey, I have these, you know, pieces of documentation I've written for my open source code and, and hosting them is a pain. And so it was like, I, I kind of scratched my own itch in that regard, very classic open source, right? Where it's like, hey, I have this problem. Uh, so we have a 48 hour coding competition. So let's go ahead and me and a, a couple other folks put that together over the weekend. And uh, very, very much accidentally, as I say, kind of that turned into my life's work. <laughs> Well, yeah, so you, so you cre- yeah, so you did this this hack thing, 48 hours. And then after that, were you thinking, oh, well, this is going to, again, well, I guess the accidental maybe appears <laughs> not, but like, were you thinking, okay, I'm just done with this. That was a fun 48 hours. Now let's get some sleep and go on to something else. Or were you thinking, oh, this might be something I could be really deeply interested in pursuing? Yeah, so, so maybe it's kind of, there's two parts to that question. Uh, the first part being kind of what I thought it would be and, yeah, I definitely had done this this competition a few years prior. You know, I'd done a couple other projects, and I'd never really stuck with it, right? You do the thing for 48 hours, and you're like, oh, we have all these ideas, and you're so motivated, but then, you know, life happens. And I think the, the big difference on this one was I was actively using it after 48 hours, right? I was actually hosting my own mm. open source documentation, so I, I was kind of motivated to maintain it <laughs> uh, because I was I was, it was like it had utility for me. Uh, and so, yeah, the, all the other projects we'd always built and had big ideas for, but just let them fade away. And I think this would have had a similar fate, but I, I actually was, you know, actively benefiting from it. And so that kind of enabled me and incentivized me to maintain it. Um, and to kind of answer the second part of that question, I, I don't think I saw, I, I certainly did not understand <laughs> the, the breadth or the value of, of documentation at that point. And it's one of those things where, as I started doing it, I've really found the joy and the beauty in it and really came to appreciate it in a much more, you know, wide manner. And, and especially interacting with folks in the, the tech writing community um, who really understand the value of documentation in a, in a much different way than a, than a developer might. I've gotten a much more well-rounded uh, appreciation on, on the importance and value of documentation. And that kind of stokes the the motivation, right, is, is understanding it at a deeper level, uh, the value of it. It sounds like you were, that you understood to some degree the value of documentation, but by doing this, you want, you started to understand it even at a more deep level by working on it, on Read the Docs. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, there's a, a broader narrative that I've read a lot about, you know, around passion and, and how to actually find work you enjoy that, um, is very much in that vein of, you know, most people who enjoy their work go in doing the work and find value in it from doing the work <laughs> rather than, mm-hmm. you know, having some calling at the beginning and building their life around a calling. It's, I, th- I think many more people end up with just doing the work and, and seeing the value in it as, as they progress. Well, I, it's true. I mean, that whole notion of accidental career paths or accidentally finding passion, you know, a passion project or something that you really want to dig into. 
It's really fascinating to me because it really marries with my experience. I mean, when I was 18, how did I know what I wanted to do when I was going to college? You know, I, I don't know, you know. I mean, I had some senses, but my experience has always been I've, I've found things in some ways more accidentally by following something that was interesting or useful for me rather than plotting out a rigid career path that looked exactly what like what I thought it might look like. Yeah, definitely. And I think... I, I just Googled it quickly and I think it might've been Cal Newport and some of, some of the work that mm. he's done, uh, specifically his book so good. They can't ignore you that I thought was yes. a, a really good kind of argument <laughs> for that kind of worldview. Yeah, that's a, that's a great book. I'll make sure to put it in the show notes. I want to go back to, um, after the competition and, you know, and, and then you start using it, you find this useful. How did it then evolve into something that could become a living and what role did it play in in the rest of your career like you had a full-time job at the time is that correct or were you yep yep so you had a full-time job and on the side you would work on read the docs yeah yeah so so not too long after it was created uh, and and Lawrence actually moved to Portland and got a job working at a startup uh, that was called Urban Airship and so for about mm. two, two and a half years, I worked at, at UA while doing, you know, read the docs on the side. And yeah, over those couple of years, it was very much a side project. And, you know, it just slowly, slowly grew. You know, the first six months, it was like me and maybe a couple of friends or, you know, the, the folks, um, Bobby, uh, Life, uh, Bobby Grace and, and Charles Leifer were the, the two folks who helped me create it originally. Um, I always want to make sure I give credit where it's due. Um yeah, did they continue to stay involved or no? Uh, not really. Um, they both, you know, helped out sporadically uh, going forward, but it was definitely, you know, I, I kind of took the reins and, and really took ownership of it from there. Okay, so you're moving forward and a couple people are kind of helping you out, and you did that for, a, you know, a couple years. At what point did you decide that um, it was important for you that you wanted to go forward? Yeah, so I mean, or like, I mean, I guess meaning, I'm sorry, at what point did you decide I want to go more full time with this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it was it was really the kind of like, creeping feeling of this is a real thing that thousands of people depend on to do their jobs. <laughs> um, mm. You know, we got to the point where we we're doing a few million page views a month. And if we ever, you know, took the servers down within minutes, people were yelling at us. <laughs> Uh, and, and so it really started to just almost feel like the responsible thing to do. Um, and, and I think was to keep go to keep going forward and, and you mean dig in even more. Right. Well, it's like so many people are dependent on it that it, it really felt irresponsible to have it not have real, you know, time devoted to it. Like it's like whenever a couple of us could deal with it, but no day job, no daytime work when we get to it, you know, best effort kind of stuff is is not the way to run infrastructure for thousands or, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And so I think that was really the, the point that it, it grew on me where it was like, I'm wearing a pager for this. People are depending on it. It's something that's important to the community. So that, that really is something that I need to invest more in and is kind of needs, it needs more love. It needs more attention. So. Yeah. So, um, you uh, you were wearing a pager. Was that kind of like a, a moment where you were like, oh, yeah, people really depend on this. I, this is really important. It's it, I absolutely need to give it more time and love. 
Yep. Is that, you know, the pager part of it? Uh, well, I was, yeah, I mean, I'd been wearing, you know, kind of slowly becoming more and more responsible, but it, it really started to wear on me where it was like, you know, it, it's not sustainable to have this as a, a sense of, you know, responsibility, but not have it be something that is actually my job. <laughs> like actually having work done to improve it or even sustain it, right? I mean, I think mm. this is one of the big things that people forget is infrastructure requires maintenance. <laughs> uh, right. And so even even just right. keeping the servers running, keeping things going is a non-trivial amount of work and, you know, somebody's got to do it and, I, you know, deferring maintenance forever is uh, not the best outcome for anybody. So, you know, you're you're wearing a pager and you're you know recognizing that people are depending upon this this software and that it really needs more time and devotion and and commitment from you so but you know at the same time you're working a full-time job so how did you begin to make that transition um to making it more of your full-time effort sure yeah so so that's also kind of a, a funny part of the story um where i so, so yeah, so I, I'd been living in Portland for a few years at this point, and I'd gotten really excited about hiking. And so I, I kind of was planning to quit my job and hike the PCT, um, Pacific Crest Trail, that is. And uh, yeah, so then that was about the end of 2012. And someone came along and, and I had a contracting gig where they were like, hey, we're using Read the Docs internally at our company. We want to, you know, pay you basically as many hours as you're interested in uh, to do contracting for us. Uh, and that was right around the same time where I was like, oh, wow, I can go work on this for three months, you know, do my PCT training, then go hike and leave Read the Docs kind of in the, in the hands of a friend while I'm gone and then come back and, uh, you know, maybe think about trying to do it full time. So, yeah, it was kind of both needing, needing a break and also having a really good opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I was doing operations work at uh, the, my company as well, which was, you know, a, a very fast growing startup. Uh, it went from about 15 employees to 150 in about two years. <laughs> and and I was wearing a pager at that job as well. Right. So that was a whole lot of, you know, databases falling over and, and very active, you know, kind of operations work. Um, so, yeah, so I think I was really pretty, pretty you know, fried <laughs> from that. And so, yeah, the idea of leaving and hiking for a while was really exciting and, and having somebody kind of offer me a contract for kind of a three month gig in that interim where I could train to hike and be able to focus on that. Something that was much more kind of engaged with uh, in the longer term sense, uh, I think was, you know, uh, it uh, everything aligned very nicely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think it kind of forced my hand a little bit, right? Where it was like, I was kind of on the fence and I might not have done it that year or something, but that opportunity came along and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it was the reason why you left your job was partially read the docs, but also maybe you were ready for something different or needing a break from yeah, or, that job. You know, it's, it's hard to make big life decisions, life. right? <laughs> um, and so it's really easy to maintain the status quo. So, I mean, who knows what, what would have happened? Um, but that that certainly made the decision a lot easier. Yeah, that's in, that's massive. Yeah, well, so I mean, the cool thing about the contract is they were very excited about having all their work be open source and kind of contributed back because they didn't want to maintain it, right? A lot, a lot of the value for them was if you know if their stuff worked as close as possible to what the open source version was, then 
the community and, and myself and other folks would maintain it for them, right? Basically. Uh, so, so yeah, a lot of what they... Do you think you might have really stuck with, you know, the job for another year if it hadn't forced your hand? Whole, Is that what you're saying? Um, or which was great. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense, right? You, as a company, you don't want to be the only person maintaining something. That's that's why open source is so valuable. And the fact that they were just allowed, you know, they basically applied money to an open source project to push the timeline forward and kind of direct it towards some of the stuff they needed more frequently. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of that. So Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. So I want to just talk briefly um you, you know early, i don't i don't know if you know but on our, the second episode of our show we talked with john bafford who um had a tiny bit of a similar story Qu- quit a start quit his job and all these things and then hiked the pacific or the the appalachian trail so oh, really? yeah yeah so we we talked with him so um his story was really about that so i, I won't go too far into this but so you worked for three months you're preparing and how long were you gone on the pacific crest trail so the full the full hike is supposed to take uh five months which is what i planned for but after about two months and only 800 miles i ended up with a stress fracture uh, in my foot so i actually had to, oh no yeah so i had to had to come off the trail and uh you know, come back crashing down to reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. And when you were on the trail, um, what was going on with Read the Docs? Yeah, so I just, I left it with a friend uh, who was kind of running it. He'd, he'd been someone who'd been contributing and, and helping, you know, with the project for a couple of years. And so, you know, he was happy to kind of take the reins while I was gone. And, you know, I would I would check email every, every time we went into town or whatever. <laughs> I I still had a phone with me and and whatnot, so I could do phone calls and stuff. But so yeah, I mean, I, I was I was still, you know, tangentially around, but I wasn't doing kind of the day to day stuff. Well, right, because you didn't bring a laptop. Right. So if you're on a phone, you're at not really. It's more communication work than code. I'm not ready. <laughs> I was like, how do you write code on a phone? Uh, so I was thinking, you're probably not doing that. Um, and so when you came back, you know, you, you realize, oh my gosh, I have a stress fracture. I, did you, did you have to go see a doctor or was it something where you knew I'm like, I can't do this anymore? Yeah, no, I mean, I like couldn't walk, <laughs> you know, I was, I was walking, walking out of the wilderness, you know, taking, you know, pretty strong painkillers to be able to, you know, make it. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I got to the point where, you know, I basically hiked a hundred miles on a stress fracture and. By the time I got to the town, they're like, well, normally with stress fractures, you can't see them. But because you walk so much on yours, like it shows up in this x-ray. Here is your fracture. <laughs> you know, like, um, oh, no. <laughs> so they're like, D- like, yeah, so I, I had to do the whole, you know, put my foot in a boot and, you know, not really walk in a meaningful way for six to eight weeks. Ouch. So. Yeah, I've had stress fractures before or, you know, hairline fractures, and they're incredibly painful. Uh, more than we think. I th- I found them, you know... I find them more painful than a, a, a clear break, personally. Um, but yeah, it's like what is what is the maximum number of ibuprofen you can take in a day while mixing with you know Vicodin or <laughs> right, 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 right. When you know when you're doing those kind of calculations, it's not good. Yeah, it's like that. That is not. So, speaking of sustainability, that is not sustainable. <laughs> definitely not sustainable. I mean, I, I, my guess is that the hundred miles you hiked you were either trying to figure out what was going on or trying to get to a doctor or a place where you could get out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, well, you you kind of know where you're where you can get out, but it was much more just like 
denial and then you know acceptance and then oh i actually now i just need to get out of these woods <laughs> yeah and you i mean you're with friends you have a community you're you're very much in the best shape of your life in beautiful the high sierras you know you're in king's canyon and <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it's kind of the highlight of the trail, and you're like, it was very much a fall from grace, but uh, yeah. <laughs> right, you go through the whole stages of grief in that, right? <laughs> because it's the end of that part of your dream, right? Like, you had this idea that you wanted to go do this for, you wanted to hike the whole Pacific Crest Trail. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I I don't know if we want this whole whole podcast to be about this part of the journey, but <laughs> there there was very much a, a, you know, month or two of very serious depression, um, um, you know, going from walking 20 miles a day to literally being in a boot, disconnected from your friends, sitting in some random apartment in Portland, <laughs> in you know the rain. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I'll try not to rub this in anymore. I'm just, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm really, I, I didn't know this about your story, and I think it's really, it's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, are, I, I don't know. Are you okay talking about this? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to share it. I think it's you know the just tech community is getting better about talking about things and, and depression and stuff. But yeah, no, I mean I really went through. I mean the the big kind of existential question was whether or not. I mean, living on the PCT is a very different reality. You were disconnected from almost any means of kind of normal society or, or culture, um, and so I, I had a very kind of existential question around technology and you know, the, the bigger question for me was not like, will I go back to do read the docs? It's like, is working in technology something that I can actually feel good about and devote the rest of my life to as like a job? And I really kind of struggled with that of like, is technology good or bad? Is it you know, like, are we doing net positives? You know, I, I view documentation and enabling people to get into technology as a really powerful force for good. But is that actual larger kind of apparatus actually a force for good was was kind of the, the question I was asking. On the trail, when you were on the trail? Uh, much more when I got back. When you got back, got um, it. Yeah, you're like on Vicodin <laughs> or whatever, and you have your foot in a boot, and you're sitting in an apartment by yourself, and it's raining, and you're just kind of thinking about, you know, the, the deeper meaning of like, what, what do you want your life to be? What's important? Right, like, is, is this what I'm going to do again? Like, I, I did not you know, expect to be here at this point in time doing the thing that was totally normal and status quo before, but now is so, so different from what I've been doing and kind of got used to. And it really kind of gave me a much more of a, a different perspective on, you know, work and the job and all that stuff. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you said there was a month where you were just really in the thick of just really all of the emotional stuff or the stuff you were pondering and the emotions of the journey you'd been through. When did things start to sort of shift for you? I mean, I think it was very tied to, to my physical thing, right? I mean, I think there's just a lot of endorphins with exercise. Everyone that says you're depressed, it's like, go exercise more, you know, or whatever. And it's like, my foot is in a boot. <laughs> like, <laughs> right, like, right. You know, it's like... All I wanted to do was go out and walk. And, you know, that was my life for the last months was rambling in the mountains, you know, every day. And then it's like, well, you know, I, I guess I can like kind of walk a couple blocks to the store and, you know. <laughs> well, and it's hard to like was walking. I don't know about for you, but for me, walking is how I sort through my thoughts. 
I will go yep. for a massively long walks. When I used to live in San Francisco, I would just walk five miles in a day wandering around the city when I needed to ponder something. And I think when you're on doing something like the Pacific Crest Trail, you have a lot of time to think and walk. Was that part of it? Like was walking helping your thinking process? I think I think it was yeah, it was very much kind of just ingrained in my physicality. I think my body was just like in really good shape and really used to, <laughs> to getting the exercise, you know, like that, that mm. was what it wanted. <laughs> That's what it wanted. Um, and, yeah. And I, and I, yeah, it was very, I mean, mentally it's what I wanted as well for the, the effects and the, you know, whatever, you know, psychological out, outcomes, but also just, yeah, like it was very, it was very different and it was very hard. Um, but, but yeah, so I guess the kind of, I think answer your original question as to as I kind of physically got better, I mean, the, the thing that really changed my my perspective was and chose to kind of lean back in to read the docs was um, we, I think around that time I launched like a, a Gratipay or a Git tip, I think it was called at the time, like mm. fundraiser, right? Where it was like, hey, help support work on this project. And I think we were getting, you know, about $1,000 a month. And so what I really kind of, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to Asia for the winter to make up for my, you know, like lack of uh, time on the trail. And, uh, and that kind of was like, became the, the exciting thing that I had to look forward to. And then, you know, I, I was basically planning to do the, the, you know, work, work from abroad and go somewhere awesome and, you know, change up your entire context. Um, and so that, that I kind of put that as like the next, the next kind of goalpost, which really allowed me to focus on the future and, and something very positive and exciting. Uh, and kind of, uh, I also just wanted to kind of touch on one of the, one of the things that really helped me reason about technology um, was this book called What Technology Wants by uh, Kevin Kelly. Mm-hmm. And I think that was like the, that was the book that really kind of like, it's very, it's surprisingly abstract and existential, but that, he really kind of tackles some of those questions. Um, and that, that book really helped me kind of get through the thinking on you know, whether technology is a, a good or a bad thing or, right. or you know, is it, is it something that, that is actually improving the world? Um, right. Yes. Think, yes. It's know, something I want to be involved with. Right. Exactly. Like, is this something I'm, I'm really ready to, to dive back into? Um, and I, I should probably reread the book. It's been a few years since I read it. So I'd probably do a poor job of, of uh, explaining it. But I, I think the, the outcome he's, he's like, I think maybe, yes, it's positive. (laughs) You know, like like he kind of has a very, very interesting approach to to talking about it. Um, But yeah. So did you consider other careers during that time when you were really wondering and reading this book? Or was it just a more of a general sort of overall questioning, wondering, angst kind of thing? Yeah, I nothing like super explicitly i don't Mm. think it was you know it was very much do i want to keep doing the thing that i've been doing the whole time that i've built all this social capital and network and skill and you know i I have this product i have this (laughs) thing that lots of people use and you know all that all that kind of value and and identity i think was a huge part of it as well right it's much more like this is how i see myself as valuable in industry in adult economy <laughs> um you know i that's not something i want to give up obviously but it was much more about yeah like am i okay doing this <laughs> for 15 20 more years 
Yeah, I think that idea of identity is really important and, and sometimes hidden, right? Maybe. How our identity can get wrapped up in things that we're doing. And that's good and bad, maybe, right? I mean... Oh, it's, it's something I've struggled a lot with in the last few years, especially of, of building a business and, you know, going in and being like, if this business fails, it does not mean that I fail as a human. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it's really easy to strongly identify with your businesses, especially when you're putting so much into them. Do you think, like, how have you, what, was thinking about, was reading this book in that time that you spent thinking about what was next for you, was that a, a point where you began to sort of separate out yourself from identity in your work and, and work on that? Or was that always something you'd been thinking about before? I don't, I don't think I even thought about it in those terms necessarily at that time. I think that's something that's much more recent in my thinking. That's more me describing backwards. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, we can see in hindsight what we were really doing. Right, right. I, I don't know if I was quite that explicit because it, it, it's really you know what makes me think that is in the last few years I've really gotten a lot more uh, really the last year or so of a handle you know through talking with my partner and stuff like it's like you know freaking out about your business failing should not <laughs> make you as personally <laughs> worried or you know like like you need to kind of detach those those realities from each other um, but it, I think it's really difficult when so much of your work is tied up with creating like I, th I think building businesses in and of itself is it, it's really hard not to identify with what you're creating um so yeah well I, right or if you create something and it fails to gain the kind of attention that you want or usage that you want it can feel like you know because we put so much of ourselves into the creation process it can feel like maybe we failed yeah you want you want to know the the most kind of pernicious and Maybe, maybe that's not the right word, but the, the, the worst part that I've kind of identified in looking back. Mm -hmm. So the, the really tricky thing is when your creation can't live without you. Ooh. And so you're, you're kind of trapped in this cyclical, I identify so much with this creation and yet I am it is dependent on me and I am dependent on it. <laughs> mm. And I, th I think you see a lot of creators in open source fall into this trap where it's much more, you've created something, you see the value in it, you get ego, you get recognition, you get jobs, you get, you get whatever kind of value you get out of it. Um, but because it's not sustainable in a meaningful way, right? Like that's, that's really been the struggle that I've been fighting the last few years and have just started escaping is, you know, actually having a sustainable revenue stream that if I wanted to replace myself, I have enough revenue to pay someone <laughs> to do the thing I was paying myself to do. Uh, and, and before you get to that point, it's, it's a very like very evil <laughs> feedback loop <clears throat> of I've put five years of my life into this project. If I stop doing it now, it will likely go away. It's how everyone in the world knows me. And so if I stop now and it goes away, then that capital that I've accrued becomes much less valuable to all those people, right? It's like, oh, you're the guy who did read the docs and then it failed, huh? <laughs> um, and then the, that's really profoundly hard to, to give up on because it's both your biggest asset, but also the thing that you can't sustain <laughs> independent of yourself. 
I think this is so important because I think this is such a pernicious cycle in open source. It's a really horrific cycle for lots of folks. I mean, you're right. There's the the promise and even the reality that open source can really help build, you know, a reputation for you, which can help you land jobs or work. you know, credibility, all of the, all of these things that help you do what you want to do, but it can also become sort of like a monster or imprison you in some ways if you're unable to find uh, what you call sustainability in a meaningful way. Yeah. And, and that's really, so this came into the most clarity for me about maybe two years ago when we were kind of choosing whether or not to do kind of our ad program. And, and the other avenue we were looking at was grant funding. And so we were having some conversations with these, you know, grant making organizations um, that have gotten a little bit more enlightened <laughs> around, you know, software and open source. And and I really, the, the calculus in my head was like, if we get a grant that allows us to fund ourselves for two years, that's just me putting more of myself into something that is fundamentally not inherently sustainable, right? Like mm. doing, putting more of myself and more of my time and more of my effort and love into these projects without knowing they can exist without me is actually became actively negative in my kind of perception, right? It's like, I've already done enough work. I've put enough into these. Like, I really need to know that this is something that can be sustainable and exist without me or else I become incredibly, increasingly resentful of the work I do right? (laughs) into it, right? Because it's, it's the classic, you know, kind of throwing good money after bad or whatever, right? It's like, I'm putting another good year of my life into this project that might eventually die. And if we can't find a way to make it real and, you know, I say sustainable, but you know, in this context, I think it's clear what, what that means. Um, then, then that's all wasted. And, and I'm actually, it's, it's actively negative to invest more in things that will never exist without you. Yeah, I think that's so true. So let's talk about how you made it real. You kind of hinted at it, you know, um, advertising. But let's talk about, like, how did you figure out how to make that, that real in a way, you know, sustainable? What, were the, what was the way that you went about that? Yeah, so the big, the big thing that, you know, for the longest time, we, we tried many other models, many other things, you know, before advertising because it's the obvious thing. What other, yeah, what other models did you try real quickly? Uh, we've tried, so we have a paid hosted plan. We tried support contracts. We've tried contracting. We've tried, you know, various sponsorship schemes, uh, you know, donations, (laughs) uh, you know, the, the full gambit really of, you know, open source, (laughs) uh, sustainability models. Um, and I mean, the the problem is, is that we're a service, right? We're not a, a code base. And so in a, in a very, we have a very different operational profile, like, we wear pagers, we have servers, we, we are actually running and operating something that's, that's much different than a, a library that sits on GitHub. <laughs> right. And, and so, um, but yeah, in, in terms of actually building something, you know, on advertising, we, we really didn't want to just like put up Google ads or some other kind of third party ad platform that does retargeting and weird tracking and, and is part of kind of the, the ad, you know, tracking industry that, um, uh, what's the the pin board, uh, Mache, I believe. Um, he's he's written very eloquently and and persuasively about how bad it is that we have so much personal data tracking us all around the internet. Um, and we and we really didn't want to be a part of that, right? We 
you know, kind of opt out right. <laughs> of that. And, and so, yeah, so we, we launched something that we call ethical advertising, which is really like we put images and text on a page in a respectful manner that does not impede the user experience and people pay us for the privilege. <laughs> right. right. Um, it, we, we kind of call it newspaper advertising on the Internet. And yeah, so so we've been slowly building that program. It's been really difficult um, because a lot of people are are used to all of the capabilities that you get when you inject a bunch of JavaScript around the internet and track users. <laughs> oh, you mean um, like advertisers are used to that? Right, right. The people buying ads are like, okay, well, how do we do retargeting? How do we do optimization? How do we, you know, target users based on XYZ? And it's like, yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, you're really having to, you know, have them re rethink all of this. And before, I want to ask a few more questions about that. Before that, how did you decide to pick advertising? Was it kind of like the last thing that was left that you hadn't tried? Or was it, was there something else that made you turn towards ethical advertising? Um, I mean, I mean, it's the obvious solution, right? I mean, we are, we're a, at its core, Read the Docs is a publishing company. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, advertising, there's a reason that, that advertising is the business model for <laughs> all, all publishing. And, and I mean, I guess the, the other obvious model that we never seriously pursued was subscriptions. Um, but that's at the end of the day, because our, our users are open source contributors who are working for free. And so, you know, charging for subscriptions would have been a poor business model <laughs> inherently, but it also wouldn't have felt right. You know, it's like, Hey, you, you work on this for free. And so now pay to host your documentation. It just seems like a, a very poor, you know, sales pitch. Well, right. I think there's actually a, a lot of, I, I feel like pricing is always an issue for anyone who creates any sort of per, product or service and finding the right market. It's just, those are just persistent problems. But it seems to me in open source, it's even more because so many people give their uh, time, you know, for free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so it, it's at the end of the day, we what we really want is all the people getting value out of Read the Docs to give us a very small amount of money, and the only scalable way to do that that currently exists is advertising, right? Like they give us a, a small amount of their attention, and we are able to you know sell that to someone else, and and that is the only way that that specific model can can function at at the scale we're running at that that exists currently. How did you get? Um... How did you get folks, on, you know, advertisers on board with your new, the ethical advertising? Uh, yeah, so we, we've mostly just done a lot of kind of direct sales, uh, reached out through our networks and, you know, Twilio was really the, the first folks that, that kind of invested in us in a meaningful way. And, and at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're able to show results. We have, you know, 7 million open source developers on our platform every month. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, so it, so at the end of the day, like that is inherently valuable and people will pay for it. And uh, yeah, and so, so it's really just been about how to figure out, you know, figuring out sales and, and kind of talking people through the process of, you know, what we're doing and, and why it's valuable. And, you know. Is the business sustainable now through your ethical advertising program or are you still doing other things to get towards the sustainability that you're looking for? Um, yeah, so I mean, it's certainly the, the largest part of our our income at this point, it's basically, you know, able to pay uh, myself and my co-founder, uh, you know, way below market rate, but at least like livable salary. Um, and we're looking at hopefully hiring, you know, another person as a contractor here uh, within the next few months. 
Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, you know, sustainable is a, a fuzzy metric, <laughs> right? But but really, the the fundamental, you know, value of sustainability that that removes the most kind of psychic load for me is that, you know, I, I'm paying myself enough now that I could find somebody who cares in this vision and pay them the same amount, and they should be likely be happy to kind of take my place and you know keep the thing going, and, and that's really you know removing the, the psychic burden of knowing I will have to do this forever and that we have the money that we could pay someone, you know, a reasonable amount to actually do the work. Um, and I mean, just for transparency, I'm make, making 60 grand a year, um, which is, you know, for someone with, with my skill set, I could go work at, you know, Google or Facebook and get, you know, 3x that. But for, uh, for sure. I also, I also get to, you know, do the thing I love and, you know, exist in a reality that makes me happy and, you know, have full autonomy to do things I think actually, you know, help the world. So yeah, for, um, for certain. And and so yeah, so that that in terms of those sustainable metrics, right? It's like I could I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, and <laughs> uh, read the docs could could continue to exist, right? And that that's the biggest one for me. Yeah, thank you for your transparency and and sharing your story. Um, I really appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, definitely. And I'm, I'm happy to, I know we didn't really talk too much about read the dots itself, but I think, yeah, maybe the, you know, the technical side of things isn't, isn't inherently as interesting. And, you know, the, the human side behind things is, uh, seems to be what, what you're going for. So I, I think it's a, a really valuable thing to talk about. So. Yeah. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries.